Will you please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Psalms? We're going to look at Psalm 32. Psalm 32. I'll read the entire psalm here right at the beginning. We'll pray and we'll dive in. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groanings all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. But steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let's pray. Well, Father, this is your, your word to us, and we, we thank you that you speak to us. Don't ever let us stop marveling at that fact that you speak to us, the God who spoke the universe into existence, speak words to us. And we trust that you're going to speak to us again this morning because you, the God of the universe, are our Father. And, and your fatherly inclination is to bless your children and, and to give us what we need and and what we need right now more than anything else is to hear your voice. So remove all barriers, please, and let your voice be heard. I need your help to faithfully preach the truth of Psalm 32. We, we want truth to hold sway because it's your truth that transforms us. And, and we want to be changed more and more into the image of Christ. So send your spirit now. Please to illumine your word so that we hear it, so that we receive it, and so that we apply it for our good and for your glory, and in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, almost 502 years ago now, Martin Luther shook not just the church, but, but really the, uh, the Western world to its core and opened the Reformation era by nailing his 95 theses to the door of Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. And the very first thesis said this, 
So this is really the first sentence of the Reformation. When our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said repent, He intended the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Now, we could read that and think, well, that's kind of a downer. I mean, isn't Luther just saying that Christians never really make much progress in life if, if we keep having to repent over and over? I mean, where is the freedom and the joy in that? And those are good questions. But it's not what Martin Luther meant at all. His point was that repentance is the way we make progress in the Christian life. A lifestyle of repentance is evidence that we are maturing deeply and profoundly in our spiritual life. And at the same time, repentance is a means of growth and maturity and deepening our fellowship with God. Which means repentance leads to truly rooted, and lasting joy. So, it's not a downer at all. Now, the reason I begin with Martin Luther is because David, our psalmist, is is making the same point in Psalm 32. A lifestyle of repentance is evidence of spiritual growth and maturity and is itself a means of growth in godliness and deepening fellowship with God, which is the best joy there is. Now, the specific word repentance doesn't appear in this psalm, but David talks about acknowledging sin and exposing iniquity and confessing confessing transgression to the Lord. That's repentance. Repentance is, well, repentance is a word that captures a lot. Repentance is when with heartfelt sorrow for sin, we renounce it and forsake it and instead walk in obedience to God. It's a full turning from sin in confession of that sin to God for forgiveness. Now, we're going to define more of our terms as we make our way through the psalm. And we're going to make our way through the psalm just one stanza at a time. And I say all of this at the get-go so that as we dive in now, we do that recognizing that we're listening to a man who is overcome with joy at the experience of forgiveness for his sins in response to his repentance, his confession, his acknowledgement of his sin. And we run into that experience of joy immediately because it's the main point. Look look at the first stanza again, verses 1 and 2. The psalm begins with the word blessed. Now, you probably know that word, we could translate it happy and not chipper and giddy when life is all sunshine and 75 degrees. We're, we're talking happiness as in deep contentment. There's a sense in which this word is referring to 
wellness of being or fulfillment. So the point from the beginning of this psalm is that the happy, the happy life, the, the fulfilled life is lived by those who know they are deeply forgiven. And the way to forgiveness and joy is through repentance. Now, if you're reading through the book of Psalms, and you got to Psalm 32, and you thought about it, the last psalm to begin with the word blessed, happy, is the very first psalm. Right? Happy is the man, begins Psalm 1, who walks in God's ways and delights in obedience. There, there is real pleasure in holiness. But what about when we're not exactly holy? What about when we slip on the way? And take delight in disobedience to God's law. What, what then? What do we do when we know that we have screwed up big time? That's the question this psalm answers. Now, in order to appreciate the blessedness of forgiveness, we need to understand the heinousness of sin. Right? And David uses three different words for sin in this first stanza. In verse 1, he says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Transgression uh, can mean like a going away or a departure, a rebellion. And that's exactly what it means here. We transgress when we go our own way and so depart from God's way, acting out in rebellion against him and his authority. This, this is what makes sin so heinous, so odious. We transgress not only against one another, other people who are often hurt by our sin, but at its root, sin is cosmic treason against God. I reject your way, God, and I'm going my way. Now, look at the end of verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. The Hebrew word translated sin here is, is almost equivalent to the Greek word that gets translated sin in the New Testament. Both mean uh, coming up short or, or falling short of the mark. This term would have been used in, in archery to describe a person who shoots an arrow but misses the target. And the target here is God's law, right? His commands in this book. And our sin is a failure to measure up, to live in such a way as to always hit this mark. Now look at verse 2. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Now, that word can mean twisted or corrupt or crooked. So, transgression, think about this. The word transgression, that's our sin in relation to God. Right? We rebel against Him. Sin is our relationship to the law of God. Right? We fall short of it. And iniquity is our sin in relation to ourselves. To indulge sin is to become twisted 
and corrupt. It's to live by our own crooked standards. Now, why three words for sin in just the first stanza? Well, it's because David intends to be comprehensive in his description of sin so that we're aware of how odious it is so that we appropriately rejoice in our forgiveness of that sin by God who we mainly offend with our sin. That was a long sentence. Let me say that again. Sin, David, is, is comprehensive. He's being comprehensive in using all these words for sin so that we're really aware of how bad sin is. And he wants us to know how bad sin is so that we rejoice appropriately in our forgiveness of that sin. And the God who forgives us of that sin is the one most offended by our sin. So Now, David doesn't just give us three words for sin. He, uh, he matches those with three words or phrases to describe just how comprehensive God's forgiveness is. So the beginning of verse 1 again. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. That, that literally means to have lifted off. To have our sin lifted off so that we bear the burden no longer. The, the sin is gone. The, the guilt of our sin is gone. The effects of the sin are gone. It, it's, it's lifted off and removed from us, and it's taken away as far as the east is from the west. And, and that's really far. Second half of verse 1 again. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Covered as by a sacrifice. Covered as if paid for by another. Covered so that God no longer even sees it. Verse 2 again. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. So this is what God does not do with the sin of those who are forgiven. He doesn't count that sin against us. He doesn't impute it to us. The debt is canceled. This is a bookkeeping term. Right? God Himself, Ryan talked about God's books. He is the keeper of all books. He removes our record of sin so that there is no record of it anywhere. Now, David uses these three terms for sin and these three terms for forgiveness to, to make it clear that every and any sin, no matter how big, no matter how small, no matter if it's secret, no matter if it's public, no, no matter its character, no matter its cause, all sin can be forgiven completely. It can be lifted off eternally. It can be covered completely. It can be blotted out thoroughly. That's what makes David so happy. That's what fulfills him. All sin gone by God's forgiveness. Now, the end of verse 2 introduces a condition for forgiveness. And it leads us into the second stanza. 
Blessed is the one in whose spirit there is no deceit. So no deceit is the condition for forgiveness. Now, what does that mean? Well, let's go to the next stanza to work our way towards an answer. Look at verses 3 and 4. David gets really personal here. This is not just some abstract theological talk about sin and repentance. This is David's personal experience. This is his story. It says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. The deceit is not owning his sin by repenting of his sin. He keeps silent about his sin. There's no confession. There's no acknowledgement. And we do this. And we do this when we hide our sin and pretend like it's not there. Maybe it's a particular sin. And I say these things... I say these things out loud and we go, that sounds so silly. But listen to your thoughts. This is the way we think. I'm doing okay in these other areas, so surely to sin in this area is okay. As long as no one finds out. I mean, sometimes we justify our sin. Okay, maybe it was wrong, but... I mean, once we say wrong... More than likely, that word, that conjunction, but, is the beginning of the justification for the wrong that's been committed. Sometimes we blame shift, just like Adam, all the way back in the garden. Yeah, I I ate the fruit, but let me tell you, it was the woman who you gave me that made me do it. Sometimes we just out and out deny that it's sin. That's all deceit in our spirit as it relates to sin. And the consequences of that self-deception are severe, right? Wasting away, groaning, God's heavy hand of discipline, no strength. It's an illness of the soul, lack of repentance is. It's an illness of the soul that affects everything else and leads to unrest and the withering away of strength. Now, the fact that David is so personal here leads to the tradition, and I I think it's a good one, that this psalm, Psalm 32, is the sequel to Psalm 51. Remember Psalm 51? That's David's immediate prayer of repentance when his sin with Bathsheba was exposed by the prophet Nathan. We, We are told for certain that David wrote Psalm 51 in response to the events that are recorded for us in chapters 11 and 12 of the book of 2 Samuel. Now, I'm sure you remember the situation. Even if you haven't read the Bible a bunch of times, you probably know this story. King David gave himself up to his lust. He gave himself over to it, and he committed adultery with Bathsheba. Not only was David, a married man, but Bathsheba was the wife of one of David's close friends and most loyal servants, Uriah the Hittite. And that sinful union resulted 
in a pregnancy. And David panicked. Right? His sin would be exposed because Uriah was off at war. So everyone will know he's not the father. Pretty soon they'll connect the dots. It'll all come back to David. There'll be scandal. He'll lose it all, including the kingdom. And so he decides to just heap sin upon sin. First, he invites Uriah home from war, encourages him to go home, be alone with his wife. But Uriah, ever the man of integrity and honor, will not go home to be with his wife when his fellow soldiers are asleep on the field of battle. So, David writes a letter to General Joab. He seals it and he sends it to the front lines with Uriah. And the letter is a command to place Uriah in the center of the heaviest fighting and instruct the soldiers to then fall back, leaving Uriah to face the enemy alone and so surely die. Joab obeys, Uriah is killed, and David enters his season of deceit. Verses 3 and 4 of Psalm 32. Then along comes Nathan, the prophet, And he employs one of the greatest sermon illustrations in history. There was a rich man and there was a poor man, Nathan tells David. And the rich man had an entire herd of sheep. The poor man had one lamb, which was really the family pet. One day, the rich man received a visitor, but he didn't want to kill any sheep from his herd, his flock. So he goes and steals the poor man's little lamb, and kills it and serves it to his guests. Here's David's response to that story, 2 Samuel 12, 5 and 6. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And then Nathan delivers the most devastating sermon application ever in verse 7. You are the man. And David is devastated. His heart is pierced. No more silence. No more hiding. No more cover-up. No more denial. No more wasting away. He responds, verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. He turns from his sin to God. He comes clean. He repents. And Nathan replies to David's repentance at the end of 2 Samuel 12, 13 like this. The Lord also put away your sin. You shall not die. In other words, David experiences stanza 3 of Psalm 32. Look at verse 5 again. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. All is sin. His adultery, the murder, the cover-up, any unrepentant attitude, deceit, all his sin completely removed, lifted off, covered, and erased. I mean, David repents And God just hits the delete button on his sin. Forgiveness is complete and forgiveness is immediate. There's no 
penance to pay. There's no good works to do to make up for the bad ones. There's no probationary period to see if David's going to blow it again. Just comprehensive and immediate forgiveness. And it is stunning. And it's what makes David a happy and fulfilled man. He knows the depth and the bitterness of his sin. And so he knows the breath and the sweetness of God's forgiveness. Now, we might read Nathan's response to David's repentance and think, and perhaps we should, wait a minute, wait a minute, just like that, boom, adultery, cover-up, scandal, murder, and the Lord just puts those away? David doesn't die? What about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? I mean, David scorned God. He committed blatant treason against God. He exploited a woman and killed a friend. I mean, this is the man who God trusted to rule the kingdom of his chosen people. And this is what he does? How can God just pass over that and remain a righteous judge? How can he pass over that and remain the righteous judge of the universe? How? Well, here's how. The Apostle Paul explains it to us in Romans chapter 3, verses 25 and 26. Perhaps the most important sentences in the Bible for understanding how the gospel, how Jesus Christ relates to Old Testament saints like King David. Here's what Paul writes. God put Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. In other words, Christ's blood, his death, propitiated, that is, here's what it means, satisfied God's wrath against sin. In his suffering and dying, Christ bore God's anger against the sins of his people and so bore those sins away by taking the punishment and purchasing our forgiveness. And here's one of the main reasons Christ died. This, his death, was to show God's righteousness. That is, Christ died to vindicate God's righteousness. Now, why did he have to do that? Here's why. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It's exactly what he did for David. Adultery, murder. The Lord has put away your sin. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, it might appear to us when we read 2 Samuel that, that God is just sweeping David's sin under the, the cosmic rug of the universe, but he's not. God hears David's prayer of repentance. And he looks down the corridor of time and he sees his son Jesus hanging on a cross, receiving all of God's just wrath for David's sin of adultery and murder and every other sin he ever committed. And so God responds to David's faith with mercy. God responds to, to David's hope in, in his future redeeming work that unites David to Jesus and he counts David's sin as Christ's sin, and he counts Christ's righteousness as David's righteousness, and so God the Father puts David's sin 
away. And he forgives him completely. And he's just to do it. And God does the same for us. He does the same for us when we repent of our sins. And he does it for the same reason. Christ died to cover our sin, to purchase our forgiveness. The Apostle John says it like this. 1 John 1, 7-9. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, right? Not, Not hiding our sin, but confessing it, sin grows in the darkness, the light kills it. We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. There's the deceit, the unrepentant heart. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So, Confession leads to forgiveness, complete and immediate. And it cleanses us from all unrighteousness. In other words, a lifestyle of repentance and forgiveness really is a means of godliness. Right? We're cleansed. There's a cleansing that happens in repentance. I I love that phrase. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins. I mean, what that means is God would be unjust if he did not forgive our confessed sins. He'd be unjust because Jesus already lifted them off us when he took them on himself as he hung on the cross. He's already covered them by his sacrificial blood so that no sin is counted against us. They're blotted out. They're gone. And God is not unjust. God loves His Son. God adores His people. And so when we repent, He forgives. Now, next stanza, it's like David looks us in the eyes. He makes eye contact with us. Look look at verses 6 and 7. I'm going to throw verse 8 in in there as well. In Psalm 51, which we refer to, you know, David's immediate prayer of repentance when convicted of the scandalous sin, he he asked uh, for God to to hide his face from his sin and to blot his sins out, to give him a clean heart, a right spirit, not to cast him away or take the Holy Spirit from him, but to restore his joy and uphold him. After all of that, he says this, Then I will teach transgressors your ways. And sinners will return to you. That's verse 13. I think David is keeping that promise in these verses. He looks us in the eyes and he says, given the joy that's promised in repentance and forgiveness and the utter misery that's guaranteed if we live a life of deceit, we ought to pray. In other words, We ought to confess. We ought to repent. We ought to acknowledge. We ought to stop hiding our sin and ask God to forgive us. Don't don't miss that phrase in the middle of verse 6. At a time when you, God, may be found. Don't delay. Don't dwaddle. Don't put off confession. Today is the day of salvation. There's an implication here, isn't there? You you may not be able to find God tomorrow. Now, what do I mean by that? 
I mean, to not repent is very, very dangerous. There's a line we cross. And you don't know where it is, and I don't know where it is, but it's there. And when we cross it, our heart gets so hardened in its sin that repentance becomes impossible. And that's terrifying. That's living like Esau. The unholy one, right? The, The author of the book of Hebrews says that Esau crossed the line. And so he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Hebrews 12, 17. Don't go there. I don't see how close you can get to the line. Now is the time to come back because the end of verse 6 and verse 7, look, look at the reward promised for those who repent and are forgiven. The great rushing waters of God's just wrath at sin will not reach us. When we stop hiding our sin, God becomes a hiding place for us. When we confess our sin, God is with us in our trouble. He's our deliverer, our protector. And not only our protector, He's our instructor, verse 8. I mean, God Himself looks at us in verse 8. I will instruct and teach. I will counsel. My eye will be on you. He looks us in the eye and He promises us care and counsel in response to our repentance and His forgiveness. And this is a promise of intimate fellowship with Him. See, we, we, we don't cease to be Christians every time we sin. I mean, even when we sin, our status with God does not change because of the work of Christ. Right? We don't stop being a son or a daughter. Right? We, he, he doesn't unadopt us. But our relationship with Him is surely strained. Now parents, you know this, right? You know whether your kids are younger and as they're getting older, you know it even more. When your child sins, maybe against you, their status as your beloved child doesn't change. But your relationship is surely strained. See, we cannot disobey God. We cannot rebel against Him. We cannot fall short of His law and be all corrupt and and crooked and expect to experience deep fellowship with Him. how, How can there be fellowship? How can there be His loving care and counsel when we devote ourselves to offending Him? The aim of forgiveness is to restore the damaged relationship, right? That's what it means in all our human relationships, right? Asking for forgiveness and giving forgiveness that restores relationship, and the same is true with God. God's aim in forgiveness is to bring people into harmony and union and fellowship with Him for His glory and for our joy, our blessedness, our happiness. Now, Look at verses 9 and 10 again. Do not be like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows 
of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. So we're given a choice here. And what a choice. We can be stupid and stubborn like a mule and not repent of our sin, right? Keep hiding sin from God and others instead of running to God and so be filled with many sorrows, much sadness, which is the evil choice, David says, or we can be quick to repent and inclined to trust and obey God and so come to recognize that the loyal and covenantal love of God surrounds us we talk about fellowship, we repent, we ask forgiveness, and we, we know that God's love surrounds us. That's the choice. The choice is misery or mercy. The choice is alienation or fellowship. And if, if David was so certain of God's forgiveness in response to his repentance, how much more should we be? I mean, we know that 1 Peter 3.18 is true. Right, so we, we look at Psalm 32 with new eyes, and we look at it through a gospel lens. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Je- Jesus died for our sins to bring us into fellowship with God the Father. Repentance and forgiveness is what knocks down the barriers to fellowship with God. God wants to forgive sin. God wants to honor the work of His Son. And God wants what's best for His people. And He's what's best. Ultimate happiness and joy is found in Him. Now, almost done. But in conclusion, let me just give a quick exhortation. Here it is. The blessedness And the the joy is in gospel repentance, not religious repentance or worldly repentance. We must beware of religious repentance, which is not the true repentance that God responds to. So what is religious? What do I mean by worldly repentance? Well, religious repentance can be seen as a means of keeping God happy so that He'll bless me. But gospel repentance is tapping into our union with Christ in order to fellowship with Him and so weaken our impulse to sin and be powered to live a godly life that's pleasing to the Father. Religious repentance is to be sorry for sin because of the consequences we experience. It's man-centered. But gospel repentance recognizes and rejoices in the fact that because of Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation for sin. So we confess sin. Not not mainly aware of the, the grief it's caused me or others for that matter, but aware of what our sin does to God as it displeases and dishonors Him. And so we repent for the sinfulness of sin and not for the consequences of sin. Religious repentance can be an attempt to atone for our sins ourselves. 
We, we attempt to convince God that we are so miserable. We are so filled with regret over our sin that we deserve to be forgiven. But gospel repentance knows that Jesus suffered for our sin so that we don't have to suffer in order to merit God's forgiveness. Instead, gospel repentance receives the forgiveness of sin earned by Jesus' death on a cross. Gospel repentance is aware of our acceptance with Christ. And so, because we're accepted by Him, we're free to admit our sins. Even the worst ones. Even the ones we're hiding right now because we know we will not be rejected if the depth and the hideousness of our sin is exposed. We know that our hope is in Christ's righteousness and not our own. So there is blessing and sweetness in gospel repentance and God's forgiveness. And and the, the more we see our sin and repent of that sin and receive God's full and free forgiveness, the more precious His grace in Christ is to us. So, beware of religious repentance and may God grant true gospel repentance. One more verse, verse 11. Here it is, very quickly. This is what God intends for our response to be to His amazing forgiveness. Be glad in the Lord. And rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Be glad, rejoice, shout for joy. I mean, this psalm ends on a noisy note. And how can it not? Joy and gladness, expressive worship, is the only fitting response to knowing that our sin is lifted from us by Christ. And that it's covered by His blood. And that it's blotted out from His record books. Let's pray. Well, Father, what, what, what can we do but, but rejoice? Will, will you receive our singing now in, in response as worship? Free us to worship. Do, do what I cannot do and drive this incredible truth home. Drive it home to our minds. Let let it make the 18-inch drop into our hearts and just change the way we live. We need the Spirit to do that. So again, Spirit, we ask for you to take your word now and let it do all that you intend for it to do. In Jesus' name, amen.